Welcome to the Disaster Tough Podcast, where we talk about emergency management by emergency managers. We share stories, lessons, and tips to help keep you moving forward. I am John Scardina, the host. I share my experience as a former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters over the past decade. I now lead a private emergency management firm called Doberman Emergency Management, that focuses on emergency planning, mitigation, and response. This podcast is brought to you by L3 Harris. L3 Harris is an amazing company. They provide communications for first responders all over the world. They created the Beyond Push to Talk app that allows your team to communicate between mobile devices and radios through encrypted lines, which makes it so much easier for the team. Even better, they are offering the Beyond app at no cost to agencies for a limited time. You have to check it out. L3Harris.com slash responder support or click on the show notes for details. Welcome back, everybody. It's John Scardina, your host of the Disaster Tough Podcast. We're having Cameron Starrett back on here, former FEMA Corps member, former Peace Corps member. He talked about getting a job on our last podcast episode. He actually has a job now with the federal government. He's an emergency manager on a response team. Welcome back to the show, Cameron. Thanks, John. I'm really happy to be here. I'm, uh, I'm really excited to get into this with you. Good, because we're deep into hurricane season. You know, the, yeah, there's yeah, there's there's some storms in the uh, in the Atlantic right now. They're brewing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so my yeah. prediction is like late August, early September is when we're really going to see like that that NOAA prediction come to pass where it's just like right in your face. And so you're going to be having to deal with that a lot. And so what we're going to be talking about today is hurricanes, prepping for them, especially with the, the COVID environment, how to deal with that. And so just right off the bat, you know, emergency managers are having to grapple with uh, dealing with this, with pandemics and new disasters happening all the time 2020 you know uh, it's just totally different right and so despite responses you know every response is different but th there are there are things that are consistent right so what does the landscape look like right now for emergency managers like what are some things that that you're doing now that are different and what are some of the things that really haven't changed in terms of your preparation well the I can't speak as much to the, um, you know, search and rescue types things or the sheltering things because that's just not my area of expertise. What is my area of expertise is kind of the relationship building, organiz orga organizing, and planning. So really what I see as some of the biggest pro uh, problems that we're going to see during this hurricane season on my end is going to be how do we build relationships with each other when we're not in the rooms with each other? Hmm. Trying to do that and gaining trust and reading people and, and understanding each other's, you know, how other people communicate, how they define respect, how, how we can work with each other remotely is going to be difficult. You know, I'm starting this job now and I had to get to know the team over, you know, voice calls, video calls hmm. and things like that. Um, that as well as, as, you know, representatives, representatives of the government and people in positions of public trust, something I find really important for us is setting an example. Mm. So what that means is when 
you know, the, the kind of the mantra of emergency management is that our communities are going to look to us for guidance, not only with, you know, where do I go? What do I do? But they're going to look at our example. Are we wearing masks? Are we taking our health seriously? Are we, you know, having the difficult conversations with each other and holding each other to account? Um, so those are really the, the big things that I see um, has differences in this environment right now in, in kind of my world. Mm. Definitely, it's tough getting to know each other and then the setting those examples as well. You know, you, you talk about setting the example. We're both Ohio State guys. Uh, I follow <laughs> Ohio State football on Instagram. And, of course, I, I love the Bucks. But they had Chase Young on there talking about, hey, everybody should wear a mask. And I swear, I've seen about 15 videos of him working out. Kind of weird, right? I should have said it like that, but whatever. <laughs> you get what I mean. Like, they, they post these like these clips of, like, pushing hard or whatever. And, and in none of them, he's wearing a mask. None of them, he is, you know, do, doing everything again. And then he's wearing a mask and he doesn't have a shirt on. Like, I don't know if you know how viruses spread, but it's not just, you know, it's just not just out of your mouth. But, you right. know, you can talk, contact your body. And so... Uh, you know, like the top like 30 comments were like, where was the mask in all these other videos? And absolutely. And especially people like that are are influencers yeah. to a younger generation and them kind of following the rules is a big deal. You know, seeing people like him or, you know, athletes, musicians wearing masks and really walking the walk is really does matter. Yeah, there are a lot of athletes who have said amazing examples right. uh, for what to do in different situations. Um, you know, as they open up charities or they open up schools or they, they fight for, you know, social issues that they believe in. I think that's really cool that they're using their platform yeah. uh, for things that they believe in that, that those passions, but going back to emergency managers, we're, we're influencers too. Right. Right. And we have to think about our presence, uh, you know, as a, as a, previous fed myself, I was hyper aware of the federal government's perception in the South. Right? Yes. That, okay. Are, you know, you're telling me what to do, but you know, it's all about personal freedom. And I get that. I understand the perception yeah. of it and why. Um, it's important. No. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's an important thing. It kind of, it makes, you know, it, it, like everything, it's a balance, you know, mm -hmm. just working with people and getting to know them down there, you know, it's the same situation all, all over the country, sometimes in the Northeast, in Alaska, it's just getting buy-in from people, you know, it's not even, it's not even specific to emergency management, you know, just getting, getting to know people and getting them to trust you, you know. Man, talk about a national discussion that needs to happen right now about respecting other people and allowing them to express themselves. And, you know, I, I always thought the yeah. expression of emergency managers saying we're here to help you is both good and it automatically puts somebody on the on the weaker stance like oh yes. i can't take care of myself that implies weakness on their part and you know and if they're having a tough time and you know that someone's home just got washed away and you know maybe being sensitive with that kind of language is going to yield better results yeah i had a uh, good friend who um his dad said that he never had a problem with wearing a seatbelt until the government said wear a seatbelt. And then he never yep. wanted to wear one. And that is just like, I, 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 you know, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist. I, if I get into that, <laughs> it'll just be a bunch of gobbledygook. So I, that is a serious thing. 
and I don't even know where to start with it. Well, I would say that that emergency managers like yourself and myself should at least be aware of it, and we should look at training. You know, my master's thesis was on that. Uh, I did. Yeah. I cared a lot about the psychology of a disaster and anthropology yeah. and how to work with different cultures. And so, as you're getting into this field, or as you're making another career shift into response, you're already aware of how to communicate with with uh, different cultures, uh, even around the United States. But yeah. taking that next that next phase and saying, okay, like perceptions and working with through that. So I would just uh, encourage you to work on that. But as you're as you're going through, and what are some of the, like those those three things? Or uh, we, we you know we, you started to talk about it. You, you started talking about you know, training and all this other stuff, uh, having to communicate uh, via uh, telecommunication, that's like the worst because I, on my last two episodes, this is an interesting recurring theme that are coming up from other people, is you don't want to hand out your business card in disaster, right? You want to train with people. You want to, you want to work with people. And yet you're having to call someone. They don't know what you look like. They don't know. I mean, that doesn't really matter, but they need to be able to recognize you, yeah, and say, okay, okay, I trust this person. So how? Yeah, are you, and that's not. Are you overcoming? And that's that? not like a. Uh, that's not a. A point of, I want this person to like me. It's not vain. It's those types of those types of relationships yield results. You know. Yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. You you can work better with people you know. You know their strength. You know their weaknesses. Yeah, you can empathize with them. You can you know put yourself in those in those shoes. Speaking of putting you in the shoes. I'm going to put you on the spot right now. That was a, that was a weird transition, but we're going to go with it. <laughs> uh, so you have the seven community lifelines, okay? Do you know them? Uh, yes. Good, because I'm going, to, I'm going to drill you real quick. So the seven community lifelines, as an emergency manager, your, your focus is specifically on planning, right? Yes. That support piece. And so if you're taking the COVID environment, planning for a pandemic specific to a hurricane, okay? So you have these two concurrent problems. Can you go through each of the seven lifelines and, and tell emergency managers who are listening to this what they need to consider? Yeah, so I've been thinking about this, and I took some notes on a few of the specific ones that I think have the, have the most to do with this. Um, of course, health and medical being the first one that comes to mind. Um, something that has proven to be wildly important over the past few months have, has been the, the medical supply chain. I, that isn't always something that comes to mind when we think of that lifeline or the components of that lifeline, but that proved to be one of, it, one of if not the bottleneck in the first few months of this. Compates, excuse me, states competing against each other for these contracts, for ventilators, for PPEs, mm. for different technologies, to, to different therapeutic technologies for this virus. And it was, it seemed like from the outside looking in, it looked like it was just a, a free-for-all of, you know, how could Connecticut be competing with New York to get ventilators for these contracts, you know, in specifically in the case of Connecticut, Connecticut is Metro New York, you know, but with a fraction of that funding. So it, it was just really difficult to watch the free-for-all that was that medical supply chain. Can I stop you right there and ask you a question? So if states have different sizes and or budgets and or resources, 
in order to compete, would you there say, therefore say that it would be better to have a representation of each state to match their level of need so that everybody gets, uh, that there's equity? Yeah, I. So that's you're, the idea. You're that's fan, the idea. You're However, a fan of uh, the Electoral College then? <laughs> the Electoral College <laughs> has, its, has, its, <laughs> has its uses. Uh, I understand the need for the Electoral College, yeah. but when, when, when we talk about the, when I launch my Campaign Tough podcast, we'll talk about that. Campaign uh, Tough podcast. I like that. Thank you. You well, can be my chief That's of my staff intellectual day. property, so don't even think about it. Um, yeah. So do you want me to start going through the other lifelines? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to start? <laughs> love to do that. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So in terms of, um, let's talk the obvious ones, food, water, and shelter. So the sheltering issues, you know, this, the typical model is people in gyms, you know, people in conference rooms and things like that. And that's obviously not going to work in this environment. Um, what, and what is being done by Red Cross right now is the goal is to just be getting people into hotel rooms. Um, it's a pretty simple idea, but significantly more expensive than a gym. Right. So kind of people being kind of the, the economy slowing down, therefore donations to Red Cross slowing down as a potential impact of that. I'm not sure. I don't keep a track, keep track of the right. donations to American Red Cross, but <laughs> that's a, but that's a serious concern for them. You know, with fire season right now, I'm getting emails every day about fires popping up in Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. And, uh, it's, it's a serious concern, especially and that kind of brings me into one of the biggest issues with this whole thing is staffing. A lot of the, a lot of these volunteers for especially groups like American Red Cross, a lot of the volunteers are at risk for COVID mm. significantly. So getting them out in person to a shelter to help those operations is significantly more difficult than it's ever really been. Well, I would say that, well, not I would say, I have argued vocally against using hotels. Why is that? Because although it's helping out with, quote unquote, the pandemic issue, the space issue, when you have hundreds of thousands of people trying to evacuate and now Red Cross shelters are being set up all over the place. Okay. Yes, it's you're 100% dead on. It is all about space or it's all about finance, but it's also about space. And so yep. we need to adopt a little bit more of what they're doing internationally, where they're basically doing tent cities, where it's it's much cheaper, it takes a, a lot more space. Yes, it's not as nice, but yeah. it is it's better than gyms. But yeah. no matter what the solution you choose to do, whether it's using hotels and now the hotel has to be sanitized, probably has to be ripped out. Honestly, yeah. And so like all these other con these other concerns that are happening. Whatever you, whatever you tried to do, right, whether it's hotels or tent cities, there's so much more time to process a person who is a, is a survivor. Yeah. Right. Um, something about the hotels is something that kind of stuck out to me in the early months of this whole lockdown, for lack of a better term, was so if we're using hotels, we're using hotel staff. And they are acting as response, as responders. And right. they didn't sign up for that. They signed up to clean a hotel room. And it's really nice that we're giving 
these people in essential services, people cleaning hotel rooms, delivering food, things like that, where it's really awesome we're giving all these people all these accolades. But I think it's important to remember that that's not what they signed up for. Right. And the fact that they're putting their lives on the line because a lot of people are in situations where they can't not go into work. You know, yeah. people, somebody who's driving Uber, somebody who's cleaning a hotel room, you know, are not in situations where they can just, where they can choose to not put their life on the line. So it's, it's a significant, um, different, uh, you know, difference to, to make here. Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. I mean, these people didn't sign up for it. They don't have the, the training. They're not epidemiologists. Yeah. They're not public health officials. They're not emergency managers, not first responders. They're a person who says, Hey, I need a paycheck. You know, and yeah, this is something that I can do and I can do well. And uh, I, I think we should all tip their hats to these people who, you know, I said that in the first episode, I think, you know, uh, a couple months ago, it was like all these other people who are in support now that did not sign up for that. Um, and would prefer to not probably, you, you know. Oh, they, I want it. No. Yeah, they, you know, it's, it's, and they have to because, you know, they have no other choice. And I, yeah, I agree. There's. You know, there's something there's a difference to be made there. Yeah, for sure. Okay, next one: safety and security. Uh, I'm talking about public messaging. Mm. There is an insane amount of money behind getting certain messages in front of certain people. But we we saw it happen in Brexit, where the targeted digital advertising machine is just unbelievable. And and I think it, it was so it's so powerful that I that if memory serves me correctly, the UK treats it as weapons grade technology because of how much your will you, you this technology allows for certain messages to get into certain people to get them to do certain things there has to be some type of infrastructure to make that happen so in terms of lines of effort that public public messaging one will be crucial throughout this whole thing thing things like consistent guidance for what we're supposed to be doing because it, so when I was in Ohio, every day I saw the White House press briefing. I saw um, Governor Cuomo's press briefing was on national TV. A lot of times, Governor, Governor Newsom's was um, during the, on the on the uh, on the news shows. They were playing snippets from all over the country, from Ohio, from uh, Michigan, you know, from these big states handling the response, and it was really confusing. You know, for even for me as somebody who understands what's going on here, there's so much different information coming on that aspect from the national um, from the national side, but also I'm also getting maybe or maybe not getting guidance from my county, from my township, from the city. It's all completely, and it's yeah. all over the place. I have, you know, there was a lot of confusion on even just a couple of months ago in Sacramento. Here, I saw that they're closing down all bar operations and that's just, it just hasn't, I'm looking at bars that are open, yeah. you know, and, and it's just, it's, it's very confusing and that's, that needs to, to get better. You know, there's, um, there's an argument and I usually push for this argument, to be honest, that locals grassroots rather do much better at helping grass, you know, local communities, Totally, but in a pandemic, which is global by definition, there needs to be consistency. 
Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I hear politicians and pundits on the news a lot make the argument, well, my county is in a problem. Right. Your county becomes part of the problem when there's supply chain issues. When that truck comes into your county that's carrying the meat or carrying whatever, right. into, you know, we have a global economy. And so uh, I, I've argued that uh, the government didn't do such a great job of, you know, the communication feed, the, the, the public message. There should have been uh, uh, there should have been a marketing team, seriously, the hired that says, okay, people who are conservative, let's message to them. People who are in, um, you know, in urban landscapes or, you know, all these different communities yeah. that would hear messages. But all, all came out was conflicting messages and disinformation. Yeah. The, the media would play these clips to, to hype that up a little bit. And so yeah. I, I feel like you, you actually were the one who mentioned this to me. You said we missed an opportunity as a generation to come together and say, we're going to fight this. Yeah. We're going to, this is going to be a special thing. You thought we were coming, you're going to come home from the Peace Corps and we're all moment of like this. national sacrifice. Yeah. National psych, man, I love that. That's what it should have been the message. Where's yes. the marketing team for that? Nas national yeah. sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice a little bit to save somebody else's life. And what it turned out to be was, oh, we were only doing this so that our hospital systems wouldn't get overwhelmed. Like somehow that became the message like two months. I thought we were only doing this for the hospital systems. No, we were doing this so people would not die. Right. Surprise. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, another, just, another thing that, that was came to, came to me during everything starting to lock down inconsistently. So I couldn't tell you how many of my friends were working in Philadelphia, Chicago, or Washington, D.C., and... Mm -hmm. They get guidance from their bosses saying, we're teleworking indefinitely. And then their parents live in the in rural Pennsylvania, in Kentucky, in South Dakota. So, so they think, oh, I'm going to go stay with my parents. That'll be a good opportunity. I'll work from home at my parents' house. Mm. I'll hang out with my parents. But that means that people are leaving D.C., leaving Philadelphia, leaving New York, and going to these rural areas. And unfortunately, unless, you know, Bozeman, Montana is going to close their borders. It's they have to follow the rules for, yeah, you know, I'm not trying to single out Bozeman, the great people in Bozeman, but, but, uh, someone's going to get yeah. really mad listening. To yeah. This. Yeah. So, um, I don't mean to, you know, get down on the Bozeman bulldogs, but they, but you know, it, it, you're right. This, everything is so interconnected, even just when the, within the United States, that yeah. it, it need there had to be a there had to be a strategy, and this kind of brought up, brought up another thing that I was thinking of. When this all started to happen, I started to feel the need to. I'm thinking about going back to school, and I'm I don't know what I'm going to go for yet. I, and I was thinking maybe I'll go to school for public health, and I want to be part of what makes this not happen again, right? And I was talking to one of my friends, and she said, "We didn't have a, a lacking of public health knowledge." it wasn't a shortage of experts. Mm. They just weren't being listened to. There just wasn't an infrastructure in place to listen to these people to, you know, there wasn't a, there wasn't significant pressure from the public to listen to these people and heed their warnings. What you've been talking about this entire time really is safety and security. Yeah. We have to deal with disinformation. We have to deal with the message 
I agree with, you know, the UK's assessment. I agree with your assessment that, hey, when you are having messages pushed out so much that now we have civil unrest or when everybody thinks they're an expert, we'll get to that in a little bit. This whole time, this whole thing is a safety and security issue. Yeah. When you can communicate with people and how you communicate with people to, to get them to not be in the flood. Yeah. Whether it's literally not being in the flood or, hey, please don't go out into the public right now because we're, we're trying to deal with this special thing of a natural, national sacrifice where we go through and sacrifice a little bit of our time so that we can move on with our lives. Right. But that's not really happening. Okay, so let's talk about communication systems specifically, that those those hardwares, because in hurricanes, uh, we have a masses amounts of uh, you know crews go out there and have to fix those lines, those power lines or those transformers, and get systems back up. Hurricane Maria is a prime example of that. Yeah. I almost said Hurricane uh, Harvey, but I'm not trying to bring that up on every single episode. <laughs> But like, you know, they have to update their systems. And so how do you protect, you know, this is, this kind of goes back to the health and medical, but it, it all comes together. How do you protect those workers? Is it a training issue? Is it a supply issue? What is it? It's, you know, leadership has to do their best, but at the lowest level possible, those crew leads being responsible for their people, they're making risk assessments with everything they do. You know, if... Hmm. A hurricane hit the Gulf Coast on, you know, March 30th somehow. I'm glad you said a past tense date. <laughs> yeah. You said a future date and it happens. But think about, think about where the medical supply chain was on March 30th. Um, mm. So if a giant, if, if Hurricane Harvey or Maria or, you know, whatever hit one of those states and we had USAR teams going to rescue people. We didn't have enough masks. We didn't even have enough masks for the city of New York, let alone an entire very quickly moving USAR operation. So it would it would go down to those crewlies to be making the risk assessments of, you know, this is dangerous for my crew. Are we going to risk our lives to save these other people? So. You know, that, that to me is such a local, I say local, but it's a very grassroots decision to be made. You know, I wouldn't even right. want, I hope that on, uh, you know, up in the federal government, they're not issuing, they're issuing guidance, but I, I hope that that decision-making power rests with those crew leads. What I would say, my personal opinion on the matter is that luckily those crews that go out, they're usually a really small number right. together. Two guys, three guys. Uh, what I would say is that uh, they would have to do, be doing testing constantly. Uh, I would say that they they couldn't. You know, normally they they get to go eat out and do do whatever. I mean, they're working crazy hours to get power up. That you're going to have a problem going back to the safety and security issue, where because of COVID, it will take longer to get power back up because of the number of workers who could potentially get COVID or the extra precautions that they need to take will make them take longer, then you're going to have a public perception issue of why is my power not back on? Right. And so all of these things are starting to loop in. Yes. Yeah. You know, supply for helping out these workers, getting the power back up. Once you get the power back up, then you have to communicate and you have to communicate well to the people in the community. 
And so all these things are starting to be impacted because of a slower pace of response. Yeah, and restoring critical infrastructure is, you know, the perfect example of their failures are the most public thing in the world and their successes go without notice, you know? So mm. that, that'll just be another pressure point on, on those crews out there that are trying to get the power back in this type of environment. All right, so th that that brings me up to the, my next point then, or the, the next uh, lifeline would be transportation. Right. So how do you deal with public transportation? What were you thinking on that? So we're, we're kind of, where I saw the transportation part, um, the big thing for me was it, it came back to that safety security. Where I kind of landed with it was people that are moving you know, we're getting these public, we're getting transportation up and together, but where it was isn't where it needs to be for COVID, you know? So if we get the rapid transit authority back up and running, what does that mean? What is success? Is it just exactly what it was, which wasn't good enough? Or are we really setting this community up to succeed or not? You know, that was a big thing for me. And... Mm. Yeah, and then it, that kind of makes me think again about this personnel issue of ensuring the safety of the responders, especially because, again, that volunteer base of pretty much the entire emergency management community nationwide are frequently people that are at a high risk to COVID. How do you deal with evacuating populations, nursing homes, for example, uh, you know, yeah. long-term health care, as well as just the general population. We, we bus out people. Right. We, we go and try to find the homeless population before a hurricane hits and help them evacuate. Hurricane Katrina, which was a crapshoot, being honest, yeah. right? Uh, they bust people all over the country. Yeah. Hundreds of, 200,000 people. I the think last guidance, the last kind of guidance I saw on that was more buses. You know, like that, a, a big, just more, more buses yeah, we to start with as, and a big um, air operation going on and being a little bit more liberal with the air evacuations of people as well. And that's more money. That's more time. Um, and then where are they going? Was, you know, a lot of these hospitals aren't in the position to be accepting patients and then moving people. And then again, with your point about moving people from a retirement home. So where, where are they going and how are they being protected as much as humanly possible? Do the, the places that are, you know, so there's that. And then there's also the people that are, so if something happened in New York, what are we going to do with all these people that are in positive pressure rooms that are on ventilators? How are you going to move somebody on a ventilator? You know, it's. What, what if your power goes out? I have no what idea. You feel? <laughs> man, we're talking, oh man, this is going to get like doomsday is, prepping real quick. Sad. Yeah. But you know, the, but the good thing is, is that there are a lot of people working really hard on this. So, oh, good. Yeah, we're working really hard. We're working, Hopefully, we're finding the right for, solutions. We're getting ready for hurricane season. It's happening. I'm telling you. But yeah, yeah, it's well. I mean, you're working on it yourself, right? right? So, uh, even though we didn't really talk about hazardous materials, I mean, we, you kind of addressed it, right? Like critical infrastructure. Getting, getting the, the stuff in there, uh, making sure that people are protected as you're, you're moving around. Everything will just happen slower. 
And if things happen slower in a disaster, because you and I were both taught by the goat, right? You know, once you get behind that snowball, there has there has to be a new normal of expectation for emergency managers in a response. Yeah, things are going to go slower, which means more people are going to be impacted, and that's just going to be the reality. And so, I think emergency managers need to kind of prep for that. They need to they need to absolutely go at the fastest pace possible. Of course, but that pos that that possibility might just be a little different. And there was a lot of successes in the first half of this response. You know, the the, the Army Corps specifically is a group that does incredible work that gets very little public notice building out the the different um, healthcare facilities in dorms in stadiums in um in in hotels they really did incredible stuff and That's awesome. uh, yeah it's just it's it i think that kind of went unnoticed but they've got they've got some good things going on there yeah big shout out to them for everything that they're doing yeah so uh, we, we've hit quite a bit on like the public trust issue and things going back and forth and, oh my gosh, like conflicting messages. And we just talked about how it's going to be slower, which turns into a messaging issue and all these things. What would be your pitch to somebody who's listening in and, and now they're like, all the light bulbs are starting to pop off of like, oh my gosh, we're, we're, we're totally hosed because I don't know who to trust. What would be your pitch on why should you trust an emergency manager in a disaster? Well, in, in one quick answer, they're the experts. You know, they're the ones that are dedicating their lives to public service here. Um, going straight to the source for your information is going to be the best move. Even something as simple as following your governor on Twitter. Mm. Something like that is way more clear. Communication just coming straight from there is going to be always clearer than turning on a news channel. And I'm not trying, I have nothing against news channels, but you know, their job is to make money and speak truth to power. But you know, when you don't know the answer to, can I go to the store or not? Can I go to work or not? A great place to be going is directly to those sources. That being said, we kind of, we're talking about the public information aspect. Those, primary sources, you know, the governor's Twitter account, um, local government websites, whatever it may be, they kind of need to meet the public halfway. The the public needs, if they're going to trust them, we need to get these messages in front of them in a way that they understand where they're at. We have to meet them where they're at, you know. So I think it's, it's, it's going to be a change on both sides, both the local governments and the public. I think you just gave me a new, I've been working on my own version of axioms. Yeah. Um, as you know, Rodney and I really have worked together a lot and he's encouraged me to like, look for these key points. I've got the, I've got the axiom slideshow from Rodney. Good, good. So one of mine is that there's no such thing as the boy who cried wolf in emergency management. Right. Because we want to be wrong. Like we want to save lives. We, we, we want to, what we just said five seconds ago about it's going to be a lot worse and take a lot more time, I hope we're wrong, right? Uh, another one is there's no such thing as uh, micromanagement in communication. Yeah. What I mean by that is like I'm a super anti-micromanagement uh, kind of guy. Like mm -hmm. I want to give people the right principle and let them govern themselves. But the problem with that is like in communication – like it's 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 mind-boggling 
People have access more to experts than they ever, ever had in the history of the world. But that, they also have access to non-experts. Exactly. So we sh instead of like always talking about the negative, like which, which sometimes I do, to be honest, there is the other side of the coin. You can follow your governor on Twitter. You can follow the CDC on Twitter or on social media. You can go to the right sources every single time. And as an emergency manager, you should. I had a list when I was on the national team. I had, I don't know, 75 different sources of data that I would check. In fact, I, I eventually compiled it all together on a, an internal website for the team where every single day we could go through and look at every single official source. Everybody can have their own opinion, and that's, that's okay. Well, it's really not that okay. You should really be an expert if you're going to speak. But at the end of the day, if you're able to go through, everybody should be using the same source of information. If we're all going to be wrong, we all should be wrong together. If we're all going to be right, we should all be right together. And I think that helps a federal response when you're using 26 different federal agencies. Yeah. You have to you have to decide, okay, we're going to follow the National Weather Service, even though Mike's Spaghetti Channel, which I love, uh, not, a, not a sponsor, he has this, it's called Mike's Spaghetti Models. That's what it's called. Okay. Uh, MikeSpaghettiModels.com. And it shows every single possible weather scenario out there. It compiles it all on the same website and you can see it really easily. But you have to choose your expert. Right. Dr. Fauci. I, I get some crap from a good friend of mine. He's like, oh, you love Dr. Fauci. It's like, no, I don't really love the guy. But he's the expert. Right. And so I'm just going to listen to the expert on this one. And Yeah. No one forward. expects, you know. No one expe is expecting everyone to know everything. You know, great leaders know what they don't know. But that's the problem right now is we are in, uh, okay, truth be told, like two nights ago, I watched Hamilton uh, okay. with my wife. And first of all, I thought it was a play. I didn't know it was a musical. So I was like, what is that? You happening? didn't know like Hamilton was a musical? I wasn't versed. You need to increase your level of situational awareness. Well, I did because I watched it and I really liked it. And what they stressed a lot was that this country is flawed, but the ideals are great. Yes. And people are flawed, but they can still be great. And uh, that's not to take away from all the major things that happened and uh, in history. And so I don't want to minimalize that at all. Yeah. What I'm saying is because there's so much information out there, when you hear an expert and that expert uh, at one point is like, I'm following the best information I have at the moment, everyone's like, whoa. Like, how dare you? How dare yeah. you change what you said a month ago? Be you know, there was a thing from CDC, I think. There At one point, they said, don't wear masks. Well, that was the clip. But what was actually said is, don't wear masks because people don't know how to wear them, and they keep on touching them. Right. Which is makes it void. And then, mm -hmm. they, then they said, well, forget that. Just wear the mask. It's better than not wearing the mask. Right. And everyone, like, harped on that, right? Yeah. And so I would say allow... Allow experts to have a little flaw because at the end of the day they do no more than you their worst day is better than your best you know in yeah. terms of making decisions for this absolutely and that's what emergency managers should be we have to be experts in every single type of disaster but what your point was earlier about collaboration man you really talked about that right like you hit it home because 
I, as an emergency manager, I want to know about continuity of operations plans, emergency operations plans, occupant emergency plans, hazard vulnerabilities assessments, hazard mitigation plans, all these different things, how it impacts the seven lifelines, as you were just talking about. And yet, if there is a hazardous material situation, even though you understand the, the macro perspective, you're going to get a micro perspective. You're going to get an expert who understands chemical compound X and say, tell me about it. How's it going to impact this community? And that's where a, a real emergency manager, a real expert will come in and say, this is what I know and this is what I don't know. Again, to your point, I shouldn't build you up too much, but it's kind of, you're worth it, right? You said that. You're like, well, I'm not... I don't do search and rescue, but this is what I can talk to. Yeah. And that's how listeners can know that you're an expert in in your field because you're not talking trying to talk to everything. Okay, so let's let's move on uh, because there's a couple more questions I want to ask you, and then we're going to do this rapid fire thing, this new thing that we're All doing. Right. All right. So we've talked a lot about the public perception. We've talked about communications. Let's talk about emergency managers and what emergency managers really need to do. Okay. So. If you're dealing with a, a pandemic and you can't do training in person, as you talked to before, how do you do that? How do you stay above the curve? I am, I'm very excited about this one because Good. in my job, I kind of have tripped and fallen into a training coordinator position. <laughs> uh, nice. My answer to that is you still have to train. Well, you can't, we can't train for thing for convenience. You know, we can't tr get, we can't prepare for just the convenient scenarios. You know, if we have an exercise planned and a pandemic happens and we need to do the exercise in the pandemic, you know, I, I reject the idea that we should be not training in these environments. You know, this is, this is the show, you know, we, like, we have to be training the, in, in this environment the, Otherwise, like, what are we doing here? You know, I, this is something I feel pretty <laughs> passionately about. Um, I completely reject the idea that we should be postponing training. If we, if we do it online, we got to do it online. If we're doing it in person in, you know, the Bronco stadium, six feet apart from each other, then that's what we have to do. But we, this is, we have to maintain our readiness posture and we have to, and if that means we pay what we have to pay, you know, it's, it's, going to be expensive. We shouldn't waste money, but we got to, we have to do this job. Pay what we have to pay. That's also for your health. Uh, emergency managers, uh, especially first responders, they take a risk. They take a risk in response. And uh, man, talk about dropping a mic because you, what you said is I, I, I agree a hundred percent. You might have to change how you do it a little bit, but yeah. you still have to do it. We, have to, we can't change. We can't change what we do. But we we have to change how we do it. We're not we're not changing the deliverables, but we are changing how we get there. And maybe not even uh, changing the the tempo. If you were going to meet in person, you should still meet in person because you have because emergency managers don't deal with hypothetical. I mean, we we talk about hypothetical before it happens, but we base it. We should be basing it off of data. This is what's going to happen. We will have a hurricane, and we will have a hurricane in a pandemic pandemic that's happening now. So let's figure out how to do it right now and go through that process of, oh crap, you know, right. we didn't, we didn't do this right. A third of our staff got sick. That is a, that is a risk that we're willing to take. And I think that's, that's very different than the public perception, the public stance, because 
they're going through 2020 and killer killer hornets uh you know yeah. sahara desert this and they're hearing about all these different disasters and like it's over it's overloading people i it's a good friend of mine text me and was like oh my gosh somebody got the bubonic plague in china and i was like well welcome to lake tahoe and she was like what i'm like the bubonic plagues in lake tahoe yeah you know rodents carry it she was like, I had no idea. We I'm have like, therapeutics now. It's not. It's not yeah. yeah it's, first of all, it's not fifteen hundred. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but second of all, like they're think people like want to pump the brakes on every single disaster and pause pause life, right? Yeah. Pause reality. And you know we are talking about sacrifice, and so sometimes you do have to pump the brakes. But emergency managers cannot afford to wait. We have diminishing skills. Those skills have to be refreshed frequently, or that tempo will be too slow. And you will lose a lot more people than you should, right? Yeah. Gosh, I need Absolutely. to get off my horse and let you uh, no. let you talk for a little bit. But it, everything you said was right. Okay, so I get that a lot. Thank you. That every time that every time you speak, you're right. Yeah, you know, I get used to your it. Your audience must be very small. <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean you got hired uh, for a good reason, and uh, when they hired you, I totally supported that. I appreciate it. Yeah, I want to have you on the show multiple times, right? Uh, okay, so now you have different constraints. You talked about the tempos changing for the seven lifelines, all these additional concerns. What are some of the discussions that you're having with the team? Uh, you know, how does that impact your hurricane uh, response? Like, who's in the room preparing for that now? Does it does it change? Well, uh, who's in the room? Yeah, so, like, are you just following CDC's recommendations, or are you actively calling them? Like, what what's happening? Um, Give us behind-the-curtains kind of stuff. Well, the safety officer is the one in charge for everyone's safety in that that's involved in the response. So that group of people is trained and able to, be, able to, to make those recommendations on the team-by-team -team level. In a perfect world, we have an excellent liaison from the CDC or HHS helping us through those things. But, you know, the model is set up for the safety officers to be equipped and prepared to keep everyone safe from whether it's from a, a dangerous area or a, or a pandemic. So that is the way the system is set up. We, you know, at least with me, with my team, we have our safety officer, and he or she is the 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 kind of the point of contact for that. I would say that the pandemic has officially made me think uh, a response team should have a safety officer. Yeah, you're telling me. <laughs> well, beforehand, I was like, they're like a lifeguard at a swimming event. Like, have you ever seen that picture of the lifeguards yes. sitting there yes. at the Olympics, just like so bored? You know, I'm but like, this is one of those things. You don't need them till you need them. Well, before, okay, I have a really funny story about this. Like, we had a safety officer who was, like, hyper aware of, like, you know, regulation and, like, perception and whatever. He was kind of all over the place. And you're talking to a room full of people who are experts in this. Right. And he's like, hey, we're going to be traveling as a team. We're federal emergency managers. We don't want to give the perception that, you know, whatever. We, we want to be quiet when we're, we're on the road, okay? Quote, unquote, quiet on the road, which means to, to other people, like, we don't want to let people know that we're there, okay? Right. Covert, 
as he would call it. Right. Uh, so what did we do? We got in three black Suburbans yeah. that had government plates on them. And then we drove as a caravan. So, like, the most, like, stereotypical. Very, very like, spooky. Uh, yeah. And then the other thing is, like, he would get really caught up on if you had uh, wires on the floor in a, in a disaster, right? Like, yeah. you know, tripping hazards. Okay, I get that. I get it. I do. And I don't want somebody to fall and get hurt, obviously. But again, you're talking to people who are like, okay, dude, like it's under a desk. You know, I, hey, you don't, that's not a big deal until it is. And what if our, the ops chief hits his head on a table and has to go to the hospital? That's well, an issue, they, you know? Then they can call my company and hire us as contractors, the Doberman Emergency Management Group, and we'll come in and step in to help them out. So Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, you're right, though. Like they have a place. You don't need them until you need them. But right now, they definitely do need totally. them. They are the experts, and they and, should be respected as that. And they need to be given the authority to enforce the guidance. You know, mm -hmm. so like you said, they were perceived as kind of um, lifeguards at the Olympic swimming pool. But when things like this are happening, and everyone, like you said, are experienced emergency managers and they, you know, they're very familiar with things and they make their own risk assessments. When, you know, there has to be somebody in charge of keeping everyone safe and they, those safety officers need to have that authority. Yeah, they know what's in the water. Yeah. Right. Okay, so uh, you've mentioned a few times and we've kind of talked about that. We've kind of dabbled on this, which we really haven't do. And we're, I'm definitely apolitical. So we want, don't want to get in too far into the weeds on this one. But you mentioned uh, before incidents like 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, even Vietnam War. I think that's the specific one that you mentioned. These really big incidents, whether it's war or uh, emergency management, catastrophic events, impacting U.S. policy. Yeah. Okay. Impacting for decades, and they really have. Yeah. And so if we're going to protect against disasters in the future, you talked already about, like, we, okay, we have enough experts but we did have experts before Hurricane Katrina, and we right. still made like the post-Katrina uh, Reform Act. What would be the Cameron Starrett Act? What would be the Starrett Act uh, to help out against disasters in the future? Yeah, well, first, I kind of want to point out the, the glaring problems that the Starrett Act would fix. Um, <laughs> the problems for me were that the biggest things that stuck out to me throughout this thing was there were too many decisions left up to people. You know, humans are flawed creatures and these decisions, what I'm getting at more so are the, uh, the political appointees aren't always prepared and aren't always motivated by the same things that an emergency manager or a public health official would be motivated by. Absolutely. So what I would propose are, for lack of a better term, a set of tripwires for invoking different policy uh, um, efforts for to fix these problems. So a good example, so when X, Y, and Z metrics are met in the medical supply chain, then once that happens, the medical supply chain becomes nationalized. You know, so that doesn't leave that question up to a political appointee. Once X, so once X, Y, and Z metrics are met, boom, that's it. 
this, you know, the ventilating the ventilator supply chain is nationalized. And that's not a decision that somebody could mess up. Same thing with the Defense Production Act. So, it, you know, if the minute that we don't have enough masks, we should have a set of metrics. Once those metrics are met, we have, you know, I don't know, Goodyear making masks. And then we have Ford making ventilators or something like that. Sounds might, like World War II. Yeah, but... We have we have the DPA in in place in place, but it's left up to you know clearly it didn't happen in time. Yeah. You know that's not me having a hot take. That's 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 the truth here. Um, the data shows if we would have if we would have done what we did four weeks earlier, we'd be looking at a very different situation. So I think that there needs to be a set of tripwires for those types of things to be put in place. And also within that, uh, some type of external affairs campaign, the kind we were just talking about to educate the public and provide political cover for the people that are really advocating for these policies and changes, you know, I was extremely frustrated in February. Yeah. I was really pushing for a lot of stuff. A uh, little known thing about me is I helped write the public policy on what uh, the country should do in a pandemic because I was part of Ebola mm -hmm. and I was part of the national team. The national team was looking at it back in like 2017 or whenever it was, 2016. And so I knew that we had a lot of things in place. And so I yeah. was like, why aren't we just shutting everything down? And why aren't we hitting X, Y, and Z? And why aren't we doing this stuff? And to the government's credit, I again apolitical. Uh, as I'm like really getting close to that edge, uh, you know, four weeks four weeks late, at the almost five weeks late, people started getting on the ball, and right. then they kind of sucked again, and then about two weeks ago, they're like, oh, maybe I should care about this because, oh, just kidding, the sunshine states, you know, the 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 sunshine belt, whatever you want to call it, the southern states. Their cases are blowing up. Yeah. And so, uh, surprise, the sun is not taking care of it. I really wish that was the case, but I, I just wish we were so much so much faster. And I think that is a a, a good thing for the Starrett Act is to go through and say, hey, here's X, Y, and Z. And if X, Y, and Z are not being met, but it's still a major problem, that's when things like uh, you know quick congressional approvals or uh, presidential approvals. Yeah, need to, need that to go means, place. you know, if because I can't remember where I heard this, but the Constitution isn't a suicide pact. So if something happens, we need a quick action from Congress or from the White House. If that means remote voting, if that means whatever, you know, we don't need those structures to be slowing down the progress, you know. I think the major fear, and even talking about from a safety and security standpoint uh, nationally, is once you hand over that X, yeah. Y, and Z component, people are like, woo, I like this. I like having all this control and all totally. this power. Let's just, let's just, let's just yeah. say, hey, we're going to change this, and now it's permanent. And I think that's where you get a lot of pushback. Totally. Uh, of, so it, it's a complicated issue. So if X, Y, and Z happens... It can only happen for two weeks, and it should be law that they can't change it or something. I mean, yeah, I'm no, not a there's, there's, it's a tough line to dance, absolutely, because 
that starts to, you know, that starts to infringe on freedoms, you know, about people get power, they seldom give it back. Yeah, that makes total sense. Definitely those the the provisions put in place by the quick action with like a little less accountability needs to absolutely include sunset clauses. Yeah. Yep. Man, good one. All right. So to finish this up, we introduced this on our last episode. I believe it was episode 12. So people should check that out. But now we have this segment called Rapid Fire, where I just ask you a bunch of uh, really quick questions. I want like a one-sentence answer or just a really quick answer, yes or no kind of stuff. And uh, we'll just dive through this. Cool? Okay, let's do it. All right. What is a tougher response, hurricane in the Gulf or hurricane in the Atlantic? I would say Atlantic, only because I've been demonstrated the preparedness and, and the experience of the Gulf mercy management infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, man, I really want to give an opinion on that. I'll, I'll move on. Uh, it's lightning. You get the, the rapid fire round. You can't the rapid it. fire. Actually, I'm going to give an opinion on that. You, you could be right on either answer. One, Gulf states, uh, historically, uh, more impoverished communities yeah, would be impacted. Good point. But you have multiple states. So multiple responses, multiple uh, you know, governors, multiple everything. Yeah. And the complexity goes, goes way up. So good answer. Uh, should command staff on a response team include a full-time public health liaison from CDC like they do from the National Weather Service? I think the safety officer should be able to serve that role. But if mm. that isn't the case, then that would be good. Okay. That knowledge, really that, knowledge, I mean, sh- that knowledge should be on the team. Okay. Yeah. Through the safety officer. Through whomever. I, the way I see the system set up, that falls into the safety officer. Okay. What is the biggest issue facing us when reducing the threat of COVID-19? Uh, messaging. And Curve. Okay. Yeah, messaging. messaging. Uh, curveball question. Uh-oh. Brown, Browns or Indians? Who wins the uh, championship first? Um, whoa. <laughs> I would say the Indians. They okay. came close a couple years ago. And um, there's a big movement going on with downtown, in downtown oh, Cleveland with the... Uh, no, with not what you think it is, but I mean that's also happening. But everyone's trying to get. What do you think I was referring everybody, to? Everybody, <laughs> everybody's trying to get the Dolans to pay Francisco Lindor. That's all. We that's need, what I thought you were talking about. We okay. need to keep him on this team. It has Good to happen. Gosh. Yeah. Um, the the thing that you thought I was referring to, which I wasn't, but I think you thought I was referring to was the names. Yes. And they should change the names. They should so that's change just the name. We agree on that. Okay. Good. Uh, beyond being aware of the number of cases, what should emergency management uh, look like? Look at at the on the daily, right? Like instead of just oh, here's all these cases. What should they know? I would say healthcare system capacity and capabilities. Mm-hmm. Rather, so they're looking at numbers. How many people are sick? How many people are dead? That was crafts, but that's what we're looking at. Uh, yeah. But I yes, that's what I think we should be looking at healthcare system capacity and capability. If uh, you know, what I talked about on the national team where I compiled all those resources, I kind of did that again. And so if people go to DobermanEmergencyManagement.com forward slash COVID SIP board, they can look at uh, some of those things. Okay. Karen, uh, we're going to have this on YouTube, so you're gonna, people are going to see you do that. Uh, he's like, oh, give me a break. Hey, man, Doberman Emergency Management, it's great, right? It's you have great. To agree. No, it's, it's, the one, it's the one-stop shop for all the situational awareness you could need. Boom. 
Also has pretty good emergency managers, if I do say so myself. We have a really good team here. Yeah. Okay, so uh, next question. Super rapid fire, as you can tell, right? Right. Uh, are you willing to finally admit that FEMA Corps is interns? That is... So, no, I would never admit that as long as I live. No. Okay, well, then you'll always be wrong for as long as you live. Because uh, they are interns. In fact, I'm going to make a call out right now. Kevin Coleman with FEMA, you need to come on this show and defend if they are interns or not. Because he's going to he's gonna agree with you. And I would love to go toe-to-toe with that guy. He's a great guy. They're AmeriCorps members. What? They're, a, they're members of the AmeriCorps. What are you talking Which, about? But AmeriCorps is FEMA Corps. It's FEMA all Corps is a part of AmeriCorps. Oh my gosh. Don't even get me started. All right. Peace Corps or FEMA Corps, which had a greater impact on your development? FEMA Corps gave me a better understanding of the field, but Peace Corps gave me confidence. So, so. <laughs> uh, probably Peace Corps. Okay. Good job. So the very last question, the most important question what is the number one podcast for emergency management that people should listen to? The Disaster Stuff Podcast. For wow, sure. You said that with such confidence. <laughs> that is yeah, the confidence I learned in the Peace Corps. Oh, that's hilarious. All right, everybody. Thanks again uh, for listening in. And Cameron, thanks for coming on the show. He talked a lot about uh, really good things here. Talked about the seven lifelines, safety and security, food, water, shelter, health and medical, energy, communications, transportation, hazardous materials, all these really important things. Uh, again, Cameron, thanks for coming on the show and talking about the constraints of the pandemic, the public perception, the situational awareness, the tempo that, that's going to have to change, the, the policies that should be made for X, Y, and Z to happen for, uh, for the ease of releasing the burden to the state so they can get supplies for the purpose of life-saving, life-sustaining missions. Again, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody, if you have questions about what Cameron was talking about, if you have opinions, if you like the episode, uh, most importantly, give us that five-star rating, subscribe, send us a message. Yeah, the big five. And uh, again, message us at info at DobermanEMG.com. If you have questions, again, that's info at DobermanEMG.com.